a while back, I spoke at a singles group. I told them, you know, what we need to do is, since God is sovereign, you all believe in the sovereignty of God. And they're all saying, oh, yeah, yeah. The die is cast in a lap, and it's every decision from the Lord. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, let's just take all the girls' names and put them in one hat, all the boys' names, put them in another hat. And then we'll just let God match everybody up, and we'll just dissolve the singles group. And they were kind of looking at me thinking, are you serious? Uh, they didn't know me very well. But what was interesting is, as I talked to the pastor, he said uh, about a year later, he said about 80% of them had gotten married. So uh, um, there was some effect, I guess, as we talked about that. According to USA Today uh, and an article discussing the U.S. Census Bureau's um, studies on, uh, on singles in America, it is apparent that just those just cohabiting together and immorality are ever on the rise. 30 years ago, it would have, uh, you know, been just the fringe of people, the kind of very liberal people who would dare to live together in an unmarried state. Uh, there was less than a million in, in America, but now that is, it's over 10 million. And, uh, uh, 75 years ago, of course, you would have probably been thrown into jail if you did something like that. But now it is just acceptable. As a matter of fact, if you say something about it, you're weird. You're wrong. Um, it's odd how what used to be wrong is now right and what's right is now wrong. And if you speak out against it, you're obviously one of those people who's trying to force people into archaic, uh, stereotypical social constructs which uh, we don't need to submit to because uh, we can uh, live together and swap partners and have children out of wedlock and do what we want when we want and don't tell us how to run our lives. And so that's how a lot of people feel. Uh, what's interesting, though, uh, when you read different articles, uh, different studies, different things about, you know, the effects of this on, on families, on people, on culture, you never hear about the greatest reason to abstain from immoral, immoral relationships. And I find this interesting. I actually, I kind of don't, but, you know, as you <laughs> And as you sit down and I read and I read and I read, you think someone would say something about the greatest reason to abstain from immorality. Let me just see if you can pick it out here in this uh, couple texts. Ephesians 5, um, verses 5 through 6, Paul says, For this you know with certainty that no immoral, imper person, pure person, or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience obedience. Did you hear it there? It was subtle. <laughs> Colossians 3, 5, and 6, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's almost like the same guy wrote the same thing twice. In Jude chapter 5, verse 7, different author, now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. 
And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he is kept in eternal bonds under the darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. These are not statistics. These are not idle threats. These are not archaic social constructs. These are the words of God. And he says that immorality brings his wrath upon individuals and even upon entire nations. What is the solution? What is the solution? Well, the solution, of course, is the gospel of Jesus Christ to proclaim to those who are lost The simple message is that God is a holy God. He is a just God, and so he must punish every act of immorality. We know that to be true. And we're all immoral to one degree or another. I mean, you may not be, you know, as immoral as someone else, but face it, you are. I am. Everybody is. And that's why Christ came to this earth. I mean, when when Tim was talking earlier just about the need to picture Christ and to think about Christ and and you know, one of the things I always think about is, uh, you know, if you're a little kid and you're at school and there are some big bullies and they're pushing you around, then you just kind of get pushed around, don't you? But what if you're God almighty? What if you have infinite power and then you allow sinful men to falsely try you, beat you, spit on you, scourge you, and nail you to a tree, all while you have all power to do what is right. Think about that. And yet, to not act. And why would Jesus go through that? Why would he suffer so much? Why would he die? Why would he be crucified? Why would he just hold back his omnipotence and his fury and his wrath against that injustice? Well, there's one reason, and that is so that he could take your punishment upon himself. And die in your place and suffer the wrath of God so that you could be set free. That is incredible. That is incredible. So that people who have been slaves of sin all their lives could be washed whiter than snow. And so when we look out into the field of the ever escalating immorality in our culture, it is apparent that the younger people, the unmarried people are leading the pack. It is undeniable. You may not notice this if you're older and you're living at home. Maybe you're married. You may not notice it. But if you just step back and say, what am I seeing on TV? What am I seeing in the culture, on the billboards? What am I seeing? Then what are you going to see? You're going to see immorality everywhere. It's everywhere. We're being brainwashed, bombarded by the media into thinking that immorality is just a normal, average thing. No, it's... Not just anything. It is an offense to a perfectly holy God. And he will judge all of it to the ultimate degree. You either get to have Jesus suffer it all in your place or you suffer it all yourself. 
but there will be judgment. And our text this morning is going to be 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 and 2, and also verses 8 and 9. I'm skipping that middle part because we're going to be coming back to it in another message. Kind of looking at this chapter thematically, we'll be here several um, times just to see what it has to tell us. Now, we've already looked at the preceding context where in verses 12 through 20, Paul addresses this problem of immorality. And he gives both reasons and means to avoid falling into immorality. We're addressing this because this is what is destroying our youth, our singles, our family, our nation to a large degree. It is this huge problem of immorality. And though chapter 7 focuses on marriage, which is obvious as you go through the, the chapter, marriage, divorce, being single, whether to get married or not, yet it is also clear that the chapter break there at the beginning of 7, in one way, isn't really a good chapter break because Paul continues to discuss reasons or ways to avoid immorality. It just so happens that marriage is one of those ways. Marriage is one of the protections against immorality. It's not a cure, as we shall see, but it's one of those protections. So though he's talking about marriage and divorce and related issues, just remember he started talking about immorality and this has led him into the whole marriage sphere. So they're rather connected. So look at your Bible and follow along as I read 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 and 2. Paul says this, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. That is verses 1 and 2 and verses 8 and 9. Now from these verses, I just want to give you four distinctives that will help you who are single maintain a pure life or avoid immorality of course these apply to everybody here but if you're single i'm shooting at you this morning primarily uh, if you're nearby you may get trapped nail and um you'll feel it but uh, i'm trying to kill the singles this morning um i'm going after them that's where the sights are okay the first thing we learn here is don't touch look at verse one now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it's obvious here that Paul is, is answering questions. If you go through the letter, you'll, you'll see this. Now, concerning, concerning. So he's received a bunch of questions from the church at Corinth, and they don't know what to do because they've coming out of a pagan background. Is it more holy to be single? Is it more holy to be married? Should we abstain from relations in marriage? Should we have children? Should we divorce unbelievers? He's just, they have all these questions. They're trying to find out the most holy way to go. And so Paul is trying to deal with the very diverse culture and a very uh, large group of what you would call maybe gray areas to try and help people navigate in a wise way through a very uh, corrupt society and a wicked landscape. So it's uh, very applicable here. Paul says in verse one, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for man not to, what does your version say? Some might say, well, not to touch. That's how the New American Standard has it. That's how the New King James has it. 
That's how the Revised Standard Version has it. Uh, however, the English Standard Version has, it is good uh, uh, not to have sexual relations with a woman. And if you have the NIV, it says, it is good for a man not to marry. And you think, well, that is pretty diverse, isn't it? Don't touch, no sexual relation. Don't get married. Um, you're thinking, well, what is it? What is it? So we have to um, we have to look at this, and it's kind of fascinating. These little problems are kind of a nightmare, but they're a blessing. Because when you work through them and uh, you find out what the text says, a lot of times it is very, very wonderful. Now, surprisingly, most interpreters say it should be translated Mary. That uh, be married is the best understanding, is good for a man not to be married. Now, you think, well, why would Paul say that, though? In the very next verse, he says, it's good for a man not to be married, but be married. In the very next verse. Well, maybe he's saying it's good, good to be single for other reasons, but he's talking about immorality. And since he says marriage is one of the protections against immorality, why would he say, don't be married? Besides that, the word is never, the word is literally touch, is, is never translated marry any other place. So that's not a good view. However, the English Standard Version has a very good translation, a very good possibility when it says have sexual relations. And say, so, well, what, why would you translate it this way? Well, there's a couple reasons. One, because in the Old Testament, in the, in the Hebrew, sometimes touch is used to dis- describe relations. You remember when, uh, in, uh, Genesis chapter 20, um, where, uh, Abraham is scared when he encounters Abimelech that uh, he might be killed because his wife is a looker. And uh, he, he says, well, tell him you're my sister. So, so Abimelech comes, talks to Sarah. Yeah, I'm Abraham's sister. So he says, well, I want to take you into my harem. And so he does. And that night, God appears to Abimelech and says, I'm going to kill you. He says, well, what do I do? You've taken another man's wife. I didn't know. I didn't know. And then the Lord says this in Genesis 20, verse 6. Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also have kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her, which obviously is a euphemism for having relations in marriage. Not only that, in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 26 through 29, speaking of adultery, we read, For an account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for precious life. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not get scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Obviously, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, it's used... There's no doubt. There's a few instances of that. Not only that, in some extra biblical Greek, there's also a handful of instances when it's used that way. However, it's never used that way in the New Testament, in the Greek of the Bible. And I don't think that Paul would say, translate this word or understand this word to be this way for this reason. He's just argued and given 12 different reasons for abstaining from immorality. Immorality is bad, 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 bad. Then he gets to chapter 7, verse 1. It says, by the way, immorality is bad. Do you see that? It's kind of overly redundant uh, to say that. 
um, to basically say it is good for a man not to commit immorality, but because of immoralities, get married. You can see where, yeah, it kind of works. It kind of works. However, I think there is a better way to understand the word that I think fits better with the New Testament and fits better with the context. The word here that's translated touch is almost always translated touch, touched, or handled. However, in a few instances, it's translated kindle into fire. Jesus said in Luke eight sixteen. now no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a container. Now the whole point there, lighting a lamp, that word lighting is the same word used in our text. Do you remember when we looked at the uh, parable of the woman and the lost coin in Luke 15 verse 8, where she lights a lamp and then sweeps it? Same word is used there to set fire to a wick so that the lamp burns. You remember when Paul in Acts 28 had been shipwrecked and uh, he said, everybody just let the ship go down. We'll jump into the sea. We'll swim, swim on the shore. Everybody will make it. And they did. And it was cold and it was rainy. This is what we read in Acts 28 verse 2. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. The word kindled there and kindled a fire is the same word used in our text. Nowhere in the New Testament is it ever translated to marry or to have sexual relations. It is translated elsewhere to kindle into flame. And that's how I think it should be translated here. According to Vine's Theological Dictionary of Biblical Words, when this word is used in the middle voice, which is how it is in our text, it means to kindle like fire. According to Lau and Nita's Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament based on semantic domains, it means to cause the process of burning to begin, to ignite, to kindle, to set ablaze, to set on fire, to light a lamp. And this makes perfectly good sense, right? If Paul is talking about reasons to abstain from immorality, and he says... Men, and he's talking to men because he says, don't touch a woman. Men, don't touch the woman because it will set you on fire. And I think we all know that's true, right? You either know it's true or you're denying it. Men, keep your paws off women because it will ignite the fires of passion within you and lead you into immorality. That's what he's saying here. And we're not talking about a handshake. You know, don't ever touch, walk around like this, you know. We're not talking about a handshake, a pat in the back, a bump or whatever. A holy peck on the cheek with a relative But we need to, we need to like, you know, come to grips here that men are visually oriented more than women. I just need to kind of just, uh, come to grips with this fact. Men are visually oriented. Women. Are you hearing me? What this means is, is that Guys struggle just 
looking. That is enough to just keep them under constant torment. That is why women need to dress modestly. Because even if she's in the Victorian era and she has frills up to her neck, it's still a problem. When a woman doesn't dress modestly, what does she do? She is tempting men to lust after her. Because she is selfish, because she doesn't love people, because she's more concerned about fashion and and gaining attention for herself, the wrong kind of attention, not the attention that says, man, she's got godly character. Which is what Peter says women should go after. She uses her dress, her externals, and they become, she becomes a stumbling block to other men and even to other women who might say, well, I wish I had that dress and that, you know, 3000 gold ring and, you know, whatever, just, you know, you, you, you can god yourself up to where it become like a, a distraction to men and women, to wives who are trying to protect their husbands, to moms who are trying to protect their sons. And so there must be modesty. And if you don't maintain modesty, then you contribute. Now, this doesn't give men an excuse. You know, when you're a man, you're out in the world. If there's an immodest woman, you just got to look away. Now, if men are visually this way, we would expect to see this in the scripture, right? You would expect to see something in the scripture that would be addressed to men. And you know what? That's what we find. We don't see any exhortations specifically given to women, but we do to men. Why? Because that's how they are. Remember what Job said in Job 31.1, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? He made a covenant. I'm not going to look. I'm not going to stare and go, oh, look at that cute thing, that cute thing, that cute thing. No, I'm not going to look at that. Why? Because it's going to tempt me to lust. Solomon in Proverbs chapter six, verse 25 says, do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. No tractor beam stuff. You know, you're sitting there eating lunch and you look across the room and some woman's got her tractor beams looking for somebody to lock on. You see that? Uh, Don't. Don't lock on. Jesus says in Matthew six twenty eight, everyone who looks at a woman and lusts for her has committed adultery with her in his heart. Why does Peter, Peter describe false teachers as having eyes full of adultery? Why are all these exhortations to men? Hello. We've got the biggest problem. In Psalm 101, verse 3, the psalmist tells us part of the remedy is to set no worthless things before your eyes. Or Psalm 119, 37, the psalmist cries out, turn my eyes away from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Just don't look. Married men sometimes stare at attractive women and, you know, there's, they kind of quip and joke, well, there's no harm in looking. Yes, there is harm. Why? Because looking leads to lusting and lusting leads to acting out sin. The word of God instructs men not to look, not to stare, not to gaze or be captured by a woman's beauty. Unless it's your wife. I was looking at you, honey. 
So singles, what you need to do on the first date is kind of decide what your boundaries are going to be. You need to declare them. You know, you go out whether you know the person or not, whether you think they understand you or not. You sit down, you declare, say, you know what? I don't know what your intentions are. I don't know how far this is going to go. This may be the only date, but I just want you to know. I want to honor the Lord. I want to maintain purity. Don't touch me. Capiche? <laughs> then flash your sidearm at him, your taser and your pepper mace. Now listen, you touch me, you're going to get all three of these. They'll be fine you at the coroner's office. You start hugging and you start kissing and embracing and what's going to happen? It's going to lead you into immorality in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the first kiss. So singles, look at it there in the word of God. Do you see it there? It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Why? Because it will kindle him into flame. And yes, it will lead to sexual immorality. And parents, whatever you do, don't undermine the word of God. You know, I've talked to parents about this who've been really offended. You know, I can't believe you're telling my kids not to you know, do this. I mean, we did that. Well, you're not the standard. Did you maintain purity? Well, yeah. Purity is the standard. Obeying the word of God is the standard. However, regardless how you did it, if you didn't maintain purity, it's not the right way. Just do what the scriptures say. Again, we're not talking about harmless, non-sensual contact. But listen, if you're single and you're attracted to somebody, almost any contact is sensual. Right? There's a new movement among Christians today in reaction to all the gross immorality going on in the culture. It's called the virgin lips movement. And many are just committing from the very beginning. I'm not going to kiss anybody until I kiss my wife or my husband on my wedding day. I've been to several weddings where I've seen this happen. It was so cool where the pastor says these people have committed themselves to purity and they're going to kiss right now for the first time. And, it, and when they say that, everybody goes, oh. Because it's so holy, it is so honorable. And then everybody watches to see what's going to happen. <laughs> and it works, amazingly. Sometimes they kiss several times and go, wow. And you know, if you're sitting out there, you may be a little defensive, like, well, I don't, I'm not, I don't think, you know, and I'm not saying that all Christians need to do this, but I'm telling you this, all Christians need to maintain purity. All Christians need to flee immorality. And that's a non-negotiable. Now, if you think you can do some degree of kissing and not fall into that, then more power to you. But let's be honest, kissing creates some serious sparks. And, you know, if you're kind of feeling defensive like now because maybe you're in a relationship and maybe you are kissing and thinking, well, we haven't done anything like really, really bad. But are you maintaining purity? That's the question. How's your heart? How's your heart? Just think about this. Do you think that it is wrong to not kiss? I mean, that is just unbiblical to not kiss until your wedding day. Well, of course, you'd say, well, no, I guess it's okay. You know, I mean, it's obviously not wrong to take a solid stand for purity now if you were to get married 
do you think that you would feel more honored by another person if you knew that person had never kissed anybody, especially in a sensual way, ever before or after you would be the only person and they're saving that only for you. Would you feel honored? I think so. You would think extremely honored. I was like, man, you are, you are amazing. That would be a very honorable and holy thing to do. Do you think that, you know, let's say you, you, you were dating somebody and you dated for like two years and, and, uh, you know, you just never fell into like gross immorality, but you know, you crossed the line and God knows you crossed the line. And then later on you find somebody else and you're getting married. Are you going to be glad that you did cross the line, that you did plant your lips on somebody that you're not married to? Somebody you might see at church. I mean, you're going to be glad about that. I don't think so. I think if you had the option, you would say, you know what? If I would have known, I wouldn't have been marrying that person. I probably wouldn't have done that. Well, there you have it. Singles, you have to swim against the current. You have to flee from sexual temptation, even if it's your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your fiance. You realize that the command to flee sexual temptation is not just for those who are not engaged. Even if you're engaged and you're a week away from getting married, the command is few go be a fugitive. It's like, you know, you get around and you're planning on what kind of ribbon you're going to put on the tables and everything seems fine. And you're getting a little warm. And all of a sudden the guy says, gotta go. Praise God. Before you get into any serious relationship, decide right now what you're going to do, how far you're going to go from the Bible and take a stand for purity. Do not follow the world. It's good for a man not to touch a woman because I'm telling you, it's like a spark to gasoline. Two, get married to help prevent immorality. Look at verse two, because of immoralities and just stop there. Remember that immorality is any sort of sexual activity outside of marriage, forbidden by the word of God. He has just said, men, don't touch a woman because it will ignite you and tempt you in that direction. However, because this is a possibility, get married, get married. Each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Marriage is a safe place to touch. You know, all of us have sexual desires. God gave them to us. They're normal. They're right. He created them and he created them to be satisfied within marriage. Within marriage. They're not bad. They're not sinful. They're good. We'll talk about this more next week. You remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness? Jesus had fasted 40 days. And you remember what Satan did, right? He came to him and said, you know, why don't you make yourself a nice steamy loaf of sourdough bread with slathered with butter and just eat that thing out of that stone. Now, if you think about it, Jesus had eaten bread before he went into the wilderness and he would eat bread after. So bread's a good thing. And Jesus had to eat it. He had it eating it before and he would eat bread again. And so what's the problem? 
The problem was, is God wanted Jesus to wait. The blessing would come after the waiting. Satan wanted Jesus to have a good thing, but before it's time. And right after that, what happened? Satan takes Jesus up, shows him the kingdom of the world and says, I'll give you all these kingdoms if you bow down and worship me. And what was wrong with that? Shouldn't Jesus have all the kingdoms of the world? Yes. Isn't he destined to rule all the kings of the world? Yes. He's the king of kings and Lord of lords, and he is going to rule the world. So it's a good thing, right? That he rules the kingdom of the world. I mean, that's what the Bible says. It predicts it's going to happen. So why not have it happen a little sooner? Why not just worship Satan a little bit and get what's good sooner? It's just a kiss. It's just an embrace. It's just an intimate act created by God. But Satan leaves out the part in the confines of marriage. Two out of the three temptations leveled against Jesus by Satan were temptations to have good things before their time. And singles, hear it out. That is one of Satan's schemes. That's how he erodes your convictions. Well, you're going to be married to this person anyways, maybe. I mean, they may ask you to marry them or you may marry them anyways. And after all, God created this. It's part of being human. I mean, you know, it's not like, you know, it wasn't invented by God and you're going to be married anyways. And why not? See, those are the same kind of things. Have what is good before it's time. But Paul says, listen, if you have those desires, great, satisfy them in marriage. If you're a man, get a wife. You're a woman, get a husband. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 5, speaking of uh, intimacy between married people and how they need to fulfill their responsibilities in that area. He says, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you will be devoted yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So what does that tell you? Well, even if you are marriage, it's no cure. You still have to maintain self-control. It's just that marriage is part of the cure. It's a line of defense, not the only defense. Notice if a marriage married couple come apart, they can be vulnerable to Satan's temptations. And if you're single, you're vulnerable. If God hasn't given you that gift of singleness, you're especially vulnerable Notice the text doesn't explicitly say get married as soon as possible. I mean, there is the command, let each have. There's the two commands, let each have, um, which it's a present active command. So it's kind of speaks of some immediacy, but realize that he's not saying, listen, throw all wisdom away. Just get married. Just find a warm body that'll say yes and get married. Okay, he's not saying that. He's not saying that there are reasons to abstain from marriage. For instance, if you are a man or a woman and you're entrenched in sin, you're not fit to be married. If you're living in this sinful, rebellious lifestyle, you're not fit to be married. If you're a man who's still living at home, playing video games without a job, you don't know how to manage money or do laundry or you don't practice the godly disciplines. You're not serving in church. You're unfit to be a husband. 
a godly husband. You're unfit to marry a Christian woman. And as a matter of fact, you're probably not even a Christian because if you were, you would take responsibility and start living for the Lord. And guys, if you see a very cute, attractive woman and she's sweet and funny and winsome and flattering, but she doesn't read her Bible and she has no history in serving in church and she's not generous and doesn't like to practice hospitality and she doesn't like to share her faith. Do not marry her. Do not marry her. She probably doesn't even know the Lord, though she may come to church. Christians follow the Lord. They don't just call themselves Christians. They walk as Christians. There are also times when marriage should be postponed because it's just the circumstances are such, you know, like if you're going to go into the military and you're thinking, you know, I'm going to go to the military here. I think I'll get married and leave my wife for four years. That, that's not good. How can you fulfill the responsibility of a husband, of a father, if you're not there? You know, if you're going to go on some missions adventure and go to Tibet and climb Everest and went just to backpackers, I don't know, mountain climbers, you know, you probably shouldn't be married. It's just not a place for you to watch over your family, to love your wife and to train your children and to fulfill the responsibilities God has for men. Proverbs 27 verse 8 says, like a bird that wanders from her nest, so is a man who wanders away from his home. I mean, what happens when a bird leaves the nest? Well, the eggs grow cold. Predators come in. Usurpers take over the nest. That's the picture. Like a man who wanders from his home. And so sometimes you might want to say, you know, I want to get married, but right now I'm going to pursue this endeavor and then i'll get married when i can fulfill the responsibilities god has for me as a husband you know it may be that you live in a culture where there's this huge persecution people are dying for the faith and people are being killed paul mentions this if you look down in verse 26 he says i think then that is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is that is single what distress is that well christians are being persecuted you know they're being lit on fire fed to beasts crucified sometimes i talk to you know young men and they just don't quite understand that they're thinking of marriage as it's going to satisfy my those desires i have and that's their in their box of marriage, that fills up the whole box when really it's a small part in a corner. I say, so you're ready to take care of a wife and provide for her and children and be the spiritual leader and carry all those responsibilities, you know, love your wife, cherish your wife, nurture your wife, ground her honor, tweeters her good soul, live in the understanding way, wash her with the word, you know, all those things and all the dad things related to children and, you know, be the father of triplets in nine months. It's fun to look at them. Triplets. It's happened. It takes nine months. But I mean, actually, triplets are usually born a little sooner. It could be eight months. I think, well, I, I, I don't know if I'm ready for that. Well, then you're not ready to be married. You got to go into marriage saying, I'm ready for the whole thing. All the responsibilities. I'm telling you, marriage is a, is a big deal, isn't it? It's a responsibility. You, you who are married know this. You know, you singles out there thinking, oh, I wish I was married. I wish I was married. Listen, it's not all cakewalk. 
kids are a hassle. They get big and they disobey and they mess up their rooms and they're needing new shoes and new pants and sports and things. And then you have to correct and, and that's that. And then there's washing machines and dryers and pipes and leaky faucets and, you know, stuff. Lots of stuff. And that's why Paul goes on to say he's married, has his mind set on the things of the world and how he may please his wife or her husband. It's true. Oh, there's all these things that you have to do as you enter into marriage. You don't go into marriage just thinking, I'm just, I'm just going to satisfy my desires in marriage. And that's what marriage is for. No, that's just a part of marriage. You have to be able to see the whole picture and responsibility of the whole load of marriage. Be ready for that also. But what if you're out there and you're thinking, you know, I'm, I'm single, but I just... I'm not really plagued by those desires. I'm not really tormented in that way. I think I might be able to just do fine without. I mean, the thought of marriage is is okay, but, you know, I don't really feel like it's something I have to do. Well, then, third point, look at verse 8. Be single if you can. Paul says, but I say to the unmarried and to widows, that is good for them if they remain even as I. And Paul was not married, at least not anymore. As a Pharisee, he would have been encouraged to be married, and maybe he was married at a time, maybe he got divorced, maybe his wife died, maybe he was young, so he never ended up getting married, as was the custom among the Pharisees. But right now, he's not. And in this text, Paul uses multiple terms to describe those who are not married. He sometimes uses unmarried, which seems to be kind of a universal term to describe um, those who maybe have come out of an immoral lifestyle but are not married. Those who are um, divorced or uh, just generally not, not married. He uses another term, widows, to describe those who have uh, had spouses, a husband or wife who have died, and now they have been left single again because of the death of um, their partner. And then he uses the term virgin, which is a single who has maintained their purity. So these are the three terms that Paul kind of uses throughout this text. But what's interesting here is Paul says, you know, if you can stay single, if you can handle that, stay Single. There's actually a gift of singleness that God gives so that you can just maintain undistracted devotion to the Lord, serve the Lord, and not have to worry about all these things of the world. I mean, there's, it's kind of nice coming home and having, you know, something to eat, and you've got your little plate and your spoon and your cup. <laughs> right? You kind of run them under the water, wipe them off a little bit, and then you use them, and then... You set them there and run another one. I mean, you can basically like survive off of like three little a fork and a, a cup. And it's kind of nice. Your house stays clean. You can come home. You can come and go. You stay up late. Get up early. Do whatever. You just leave. You don't have to check in. You just whatever. But I'm telling you, if you're married, you have to have huge hard drive and RAM used up in marriage thought. <laughs> Parenting thought. And it's not bad. It's just how it is. And so... Paul says, listen, if you can get by without having to be so consumed about all the details that relate to marriage, then do that. Paul, look at verse 7. Paul says, I wish that all men were even as I myself. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. He says, you know what? If you can reign single, great. It's a gift to be able to do that. Not all men. It's a rare thing, but I just want you to know if you could do it, do it. 
But, you know, you say, well, what if you have that gift? Well, you know what? What's interesting about this gift is the one gift in the Bible that you don't have to use if God gives it to you. Even if you have the gift of singleness or think you do, you can still get married and it's okay. I mean, look down at verse 28 as he's discussing more of these issues and whether or not to be married or not. He says in verse 28, but if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life. There's a lot of laundry to be done. And I'm trying to spare you. And as you read through the entire chapter, you get this overall picture. The whole chapter, when you read through it, is you can be married if you want, or you can be single if you want. But don't be immoral, ever. Maintain purity, be single or married. Either's fine, but don't be immoral. You have the right to pursue either course, and it's fine. The normal course of action, of course, is marriage. Marriage is the normal default course that most people take, even unbelievers in the world today. However, being single is not a curse. It's not second best. It's not less holy. Paul actually says it's to be preferred. So be glad. I mean, if that's you, be glad. And you know what? Even if you want to be married and you're still single, well, be glad that you're single now until God brings that right person along. And don't waste your singleness on indulging yourself in the world. Say, you know what? I'm single now. I'm going to serve more. I'm going to take all of my energies and instead of just squandering it on, on shopping and fashion and food and entertainment, I'm going to use it to serve people, to share the gospel, to make an impact for Christ. And, and, and in the process of that, God may bring that person who is like-minded and you may discover in marriage that maybe you're able to do more together than you were apart. The general rule is get married sooner rather than later. I think that is pretty much obvious. You need to get married sooner rather than later. If you think I I should probably be married, then get married sooner if you have the option rather than later. And parents, don't encourage your students to sit there and say, oh, well, you know, wait till you get through with college and wait till you get your master's degree or your doctorate degree. And parents, if you were to go on to a secular college campus and live there for a month, You'd say, get ready right now and be married. <laughs> it is a, a cesspool that you can't even fathom how bad it is on the college campuses of America. It is Sodom and Gomorrah. It's bad. I can't tell you how bad it is because of who's here. But the whole point is it's bad. <laughs> it's very bad. And you know what? What is the... What is the biblical reason behind sending your child into an atmosphere, into the crossfire of all that immorality and not have them be married? I mean, to send them there for four years, six years, eight years. It's okay to get married and to be poor. It's okay to get married and to struggle through college together with your sweetie. It's okay to get married and to suffer the hardship of not having very much and working part-time and going to school part-time and getting your degrees and finding your career while you're married. It's fine. Many people have done it. And, you know, a lot of times think, well, you know, I'd kind of prefer that, you know, my, my, my son is, you know, established in his career before he goes out and gets a wife. But the thing is, is can he maintain purity until he gets to that place? You know what? Probably not. 
the great odds are against him making it. Most do not. And so get married sooner rather than later if you have that option. And there's some other reasons why you should get married sooner rather than later, because some women are discovering they're waiting so long now to get married because they're pursuing careers and things that they can't even have children, though they want to. They find that they're infertile by the time they get married and they can't have children. Their their childbearing years are gone. I mean, in the New Testament times, 12 years old was often when people started getting married. Think about that. Scary, isn't it? I think, well, 18, you're an old maid, you know, and 30, you're almost dead. I mean, women died when they were 40, you know, because they didn't know how to keep them alive. I mean, the whole point is, is that, you know, sooner, and I'm not saying get married at 12, but um, sooner is better than later. Why? Because you can have children more readily. Not only that, when your child graduates from high school, you're not dead. <laughs> you know, when they graduate from college, you don't go up there and go, well, sonny, come and give your dad a hug. Um, you can go backpacking, you know. You can uh, do things. And, and when your children leave home, praise God, you can do more ministry. Let's go on missions trips. Let's go. Let's just go find. Let's let's create our own mission trip. Let's just contact some of the missionaries at Calvary Bible Church, find out what we could do and just go over there as a mission team of two and serve them for a month. Don't get an airstream. Get a ministry. And then you can maybe play with your grandchildren and your great grandchildren so there's good reasons to get married sooner rather than later. But listen, if Mr. or Mrs. Wright doesn't come along, don't compromise. Don't settle for anybody with a cute face or even an ugly face. <laughs> I mean, you marry somebody who's ungodly, you will wish to God that you were single again, but there'll be no turning back. There'll be no turning back. You want to find somebody who loves the Lord, who's humble, who's pursuing holiness. And that is the greatest blessing for any husband or any wife to have is somebody who loves the Lord. They always make the best husbands and wives. Four, and finally, don't be a walking torch. Look at verse nine. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. Here he's saying, listen, if you're one of those people and you're just, I'm just beside myself. I'm just like walking around. It's like a woman. Oh, look down. It's like a woman. Ah, And you know, you're just tormented and you just realize, you know what? I am just, I've got too many of these desires are consuming me. I'm so distracted by it all the time. Then men get fit to be married and get married. That's what he's saying. The word self-control.